Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey everyone, welcome back to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia, co-host extraordinaire Shannon Bond is on maternity leave and we wish her well. In her place this week is Mary Childs, U.S. financial correspondent for the Financial Times. Mary, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I, I got to tell you, I am a little bit envious of your job sometimes. Thank you. Right? I, I see you as almost like a zookeeper. Not even a zookeeper. You're like a zoo visitor, right? Because uh, in your reporting, you get to observe all of these wild, wild specimens. Yeah, these weird and wacky specimen, right? Um, I'm thinking of hedge fund managers in particular, but I guess this applies all across the investment landscape. That's very true. Am I right to be jealous? Like, is this just a, is this just a really fun, weird job, or does it also have its weaker points? Um, I think you're right to be jealous because I love this job. I think it's the greatest. It does have its drawbacks because often wild animals come with large egos and don't like to be written about. So sometimes they that requires some management. Yeah. Right. They yeah. spit on you. They like to fight. They so. throw their food at you. Yeah. That kind of thing. Exactly. And that's not pretty sometimes. No. Okay. Well, before we get to the main part of today's show, which is going to be a sweeping overview of the hedge fund landscape. I just want to give a little teaser to our listeners. Stick around until the end of the show. We've got a special treat for those of you who are interested in attending Camp Alphaville in London on July 1st. Definitely stick around. You're going to want to find out what that treat is. Okay, so on the agenda today, okay, you and I are going to talk about the hedge fund personality and what's happening in hedge fund land in general. It's kind of a turbulent landscape right now, isn't it? It's been a rough year, yeah. It started out really rough and really hasn't let up since then. So I think there's a lot of pain and a lot of uh, very tense conversations going on with investors. Excellent. Stick around. Mary has written a series of pieces this year on hedge funds and hedge fund managers. Mary, this has been kind of an intriguing time to be following hedge funds. It is. There's a lot of turbulence in financial markets. And, you know, that comes after a lot of years of kind of a roaring bull market, wherein hedge funds underperformed a lot of the time. And they would kind of whine, you know, stick with us. You know, this isn't the 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 case where we, you know, will outperform. If the S&P is doing well, we're supposed to hedge. That costs money. Wait till there's volatility. And so investors 
did. And, you know, all of a sudden you have all the volatility and hedge funds are not really covering themselves in glory. So I think there are a lot of dissatisfied investors and, and clients of hedge funds who are saying, you know, I'm paying two and 20 or some variation thereof to get, you know, 1%, 3% or to get losses and I still have to pay you a management fee. So what gives? I think there's been um, kind of growing consternation among pension funds, public pension funds in particular, um, where there's this big mismatch between, you know, their pensioners, their unions they represent, and the people that are supposed to be helping them make more money. Right. Okay. So uh, that's the perfect context for what I want to start the segment with, right? And then we're going to get into the details of why things are so tough for hedge funders, right? I want to do a kind of a speed round where I'm essentially just going to give you the name of a big-time hedge fund manager that you've written about this year, and then you tell us what we should know about what that guy's up to. I say guy advisedly, by the way, because it turns out they're all dudes, and we're going to yeah. talk about why that is as well. All right. Uh, are you ready for this? I hope so. This is going to be fun. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, Dan Loeb of Third Point. Dan Loeb of Third Point had a Q1 investor letter which uh, said that there had been a hedge fund killing field. Um, in the first quarter that kind of all these different factors conspired to make hedge funds just vomit, just fail to perform. And um, he sort of predicts that there will be a, a big culling, that the industry has a lot of um, mediocre and sub-mediocre hedge funds and hedge fund managers and that a lot of those will be weeded out. So um, the time is now. There will be a washout. So he's exhorting a lot of his peers. He himself hasn't done so hot of late? Not so hot. He hasn't um, totally you know. Wet the bed? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to say it, I'll say it. <laughs> was close to what I was going to say. Um, yeah, he's he's been holding in, which gives him, you know, the ability to say that. And, and he's saying, you know, activism is having a tough time right now or, or was when he was writing his letter. So he has a little bit of standing, you know, with which to say this. And, you know, you can't really lob that if you're down 15. So. Okay. Uh, that's Dan Loeb. Anthony Scaramucci of Skybridge. Founder of Skybridge. He just had his uh, annual SALT conference, which I saw described on Dealbreaker as a bachelor party. What does um, SALT stand for? Skybridge Alternative. Okay. That's it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's perceived as a little bit of a boondoggle by some allocators and, and hedge fund participants, but it is a big deal. There are a ton of major hedge fund managers and, and players in the industry who come in and, and say, you know, there's a big interview with Ken Griffin of Citadel and um, Michael Bloomberg and, you know, a bunch of different big name people. Um, also, tangentially, Will Smith and uh, Ron Howard and Caitlyn Jenner. But Scaramucci notably also had just endorsed Donald Trump. Um, yes. And Scaramucci is a big fundraiser for the Republican Party and had previously said that he would not support Donald Trump. And then, But he had said that he would support whoever the nominee was. And as it became clear that that was going to be Donald Trump, lo and behold, um, he's good to his word and sort of uh, helped Trump's fundraiser use the conference as a fundraising venue, introduced him to a lot of his buddies. Is that a matter of... Uh hedging, no pun intended, his uh -huh. bets in terms of the winner, right? In other words, he didn't like Trump before. Trump now seems like he's poised to win, despite the fact that Trump represents a pretty big risk, including for the financial sector, about which he doesn't always have the nicest things to say. Sure. So I think Scaramucci's argument, um, he says that he's a Republican in the same way that he's a Mets fan. You know, they've been down, but they'll come back. Um, and with Trump, he, his argument seems to be 
that he's a pragmatist and he, you know, says these things off the cuff, which is why everybody likes him. But, you know, people give him more leeway because he's not reading off a teleprompter. He's not a consultant. He's not using these wishy-washy words. He's just trying to get to the best idea. Sounds like an issue of identity, too. Scaramucci is kind of known for speaking off the cuff and kind of uh, making headlines at the same time. Yeah. So there may be some synergy and personality there. Okay, great. Uh, Mark Spitznagel. So Mark Spitznagel is a uh, manager of a tail risk fund. The company is called Universe, and he um, is partnered with Nassim Taleb on that, um, who's the famous, you know, black swan um, sort of tail risk person. Right. Uh, Explain that. Uh, What's a tail risk fund? So a tail risk fund um, essentially purports to insure you against um, out of the money or um, exogenous shocks, factors that you cannot see coming. Um, So, you know, if the S&P has been chugging along for six years pretty peacefully, there's a risk that it will just drop and you will be caught out and lose a lot of money. So don't worry. Mark Spitznagel is here to insure your S&P portfolio or whatever it may be. I think he's exclusive to equities, but there are other types of tail risk funds that, you know, move across asset classes. So what's he been up to lately? So he had a really good day last August, wherein he says that he made a billion dollars. It was obviously a very rough day for a lot of other investors who were long the S&P. But, you know, it's, it's not entirely clear to me if he actually, you know, realized this billion dollars, if he you know, took that money out of the market and, and banked it and gave it to clients. I, I don't know what happened to it, but um, but that is kind of a dream scenario for him where it's like everybody else is is riding the, you know, the S&P all the way up and he's just buying these cheap put options and, and waiting. And a day like August 24th last year is his payday. Stephen Cohen, uh, formerly of SAC Capital, now at 0.72. So Steve Cohen is a legend among hedge fund managers um, and across the industry. He is he generated returns of some 30 percent for, you know, many years and then had um, a bit of a run in with the law. He, <laughs> his hedge fund, SAC Capital, actually um, had a settlement with um, the SEC for one point eight billion dollars uh, around insider trading stuff. So they ended up converting to a family office. SAC is in runoff. 0.72 is the family office, meaning they cannot take outside money. It's only, you know, Steve's money essentially and has been doing really well. And somehow this within the industry has failed to tarnish his reputation. He's just such a formidable trader that everyone in the industry still kind of bows to him. I I know people who call him God. So So he himself was not charged with anything. Um, It was his fund. Correct. That had to that had to arrive at this arrangement with the. It was I guess a, not a, arrangement is probably the wrong word. No, that's right? fine. I think it was you know the settlement had terms that specifically allowed for the creation of vehicles that would allow him to take outside money again in the future. Um, he can become a hedge fund again if he chooses, January first, twenty eighteen. Okay, uh, he was at the Michael Milken conference, right? He was. And let's talk for a second about the convergence of those two characters in the same place. It's really perfect. So. Of all people in the world who have been perceived as great in the financial industry and then had a very, very public falling out, Michael Milken is really, you know, the the other one. He invented the junk bond market. He helped all these, you know, sub-investment grade companies finance themselves, really created the their um, access to capital markets and the trading around that. Um, which is ostensibly a great thing. He also ran afoul of regulations and was sent to jail for racketeering and other things and, you know, paid a, a settlement and, and restitutions and then got out of jail and has used his vast wealth to kind of foster 
understanding and discussion around major policy issues and has rehabilitated himself as a philanthropist and um, really helped in, in science fields and all kinds of other things. So I think that if there's a perfect model for Steve Cohen to follow for image rehabilitation, it's Mike Milken. Right. Deserved or not. Okay. Because it strikes me that what we have here is a conference hosted by one convicted felon um, with a panel where one of the main speakers is someone who a lot of people think should be a convicted felon, but is not. Absolutely. What did he say? It was very colorful, actually. Cohen, so, by the way. What did Stephen Cohen say, to be clear, who I'm talking about? Yeah, so he's on this panel with um, two other hedge fund managers who are both, you know, wearing ties and sitting up. And Steve is kind of reclined and tieless and very casual. And it was very kind of statesman-like. Uh, it was a fireside chat, essentially. And he said that he's, frankly, he's blown away by the lack of talent. And uh, he has a hard time recruiting people. And, you know, they, they really, there's just not that much out there in terms of good traders that they can find. They accept 2 to 4%, he says. And, you know, that sentiment was was interesting and I think a fair thing. And I think that Point 0.72 is very focused on recruitment. But he also noted um, they, they had a kind of interesting back and forth uh, between Steve and another manager, Neil Chris, wherein Neil was saying that big data was going to be an interesting source of information and, um, you know, trading. You know, it's going to essentially open up all new kinds of things to, to structure your trades. And Steve Cohen essentially said, oh, no, no, I think it's going to be commoditized. It's going to be boring. Everybody's going to have it. What you really need is exclusive data, um, which is sort of funny coming from someone who maybe got too exclusive of data. No kidding, <laughs> right? Uh, it's interesting that he's criticizing his peers for a lack of talent. He could just as easily have criticized them for a lack of willingness to do things that sort of skirt the edge of the law. That was as, the main response. As was done at his previous fund. Mm. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Ray Dalio and Bridgewater. So Ray Dalio um, has had a bit of a year. He's created the most successful hedge fund, I think, in history, most profitable for investors. It's the world's biggest hedge fund, 150 almost, uh, and it's based in Connecticut. And recently, starting in 2012, actually, they were eyeing a new campus in um, various locations, including Stanford, but also including Westchester. And so upon learning this, I think the state of Connecticut kind of freaked out. Bridgewater has some 1,400 employees, and they're very highly paid employees. And so that's a major, major source of revenue for the state. Um, they calculated through an internal analysis that if Bridgewater were to move, they would lose $4.87 billion over 10 years. You know, and that's including, okay, they sell their house, they sell their car, they stop shopping at the grocery, they stop going to dinner out. And the state of Connecticut essentially decided that that was not something that they could justify. And they, as a result, helped tailor a deal with Bridgewater wherein they give the hedge fund $22 million, 17 of which is a loan, but the principal's forgivable after five years if Bridgewater creates 750 more jobs. Uh, on top of the ones that they have now. Correct. So this is kind of a situation where you can understand the cost-benefit analysis. Absolutely. But at the same time, it's really unseemly yeah. for a company uh, full of hedge fund guys right, to <laughs> essentially be getting a tax break. Right. That's tax money that could be going towards, I don't know, poor people. Right. It's very confusing from just on its face. And I think it is. It looks really bad. But from both parties' perspective, what they did was absolutely the right thing for their, their you know, stakeholders and their budgets and what they need to be doing. So it's unclear where the failure was here or if there even was mm -hmm. a failure. 
But, you know, Connecticut, they had a budget meeting uh, to debate this. And the the ranking member on the finance committee was basically like, hey, what did we just offer this to Bridgewater? Like, did they try private markets first? Is this, you know, how did this happen? And the governor essentially was like, oh, do you want them to move to Westchester? Oh, you don't? Thank you. Right. Yeah. It's very simple. You see David Tepper leaving New Jersey and New Jersey's finances are all out of whack as a result. Yeah. And I guess there there are a lot of instances where states experience these kind of competitive pressures where they try to become a little more business friendly. Uh, It's just that when you see an isolated instance like this, that it just looks terrible. It looks bad. You know, looks bad. Okay. That's the end of our lightning round, okay? I have another one. Okay, lightning round is not done yet. Who's who's the sixth? So I actually, I get a lot of flack because <laughs> I keep writing negative stories. Okay. Which, you know, I'm kind of the messenger. They happen. But I have a good news story where Boaz Weinstein, which is a, another high-profile hedge fund manager, is actually up this year, which is unusual considering that he's not a robot. Most of the yes. funds that are up this year are run by, you know, are algorithm-driven or systematic in some way. And he's one of, I think, two in the top like 10, um, give or take, that are run by humans. And he also just had a one of his four counts against him. He got sued by uh, one of his major investors last year, which is bad news. But in the past month, one of those four claims got thrown out in addition to two earlier thrown out. So he's down to one. Okay. Um, and those those claims are essentially saying that he mismarked the portfolio, acted in bad faith, sent out, you know, a, a request for pricing that was in some way, you know, not uh, the right way to do something. Mm-hmm. And um, the investor felt like they got bad pricing. So Boaz Weinstein on a legal and financial winning streak right now. Exactly. Okay. One good story out of six. Not I just the- had to say it. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> Okay, let's talk about uh, the characteristics of hedge fund managers for a bit, right? Uh, You notice anything consistent about all five of those that I brought up in in the speed round? They are very comfortable taking big risks. They're also all white dudes. Oh, yeah, that's right. That too. (laughs) (laughs) It's been sort of known for a long time that among the ranks of hedge fund managers, right, even as the number of hedge funds has proliferated, uh, there's still a huge imbalance Absolutely. in terms of women and minorities who uh, ascend to the upper ranks, right? What do you think is the cause of that? Uh, and what, if anything, is the industry doing to rectify it? Gosh, that's a great question. And there are about a trillion answers. The cause is in part that it's just always been this way. It's a pipeline problem. A path dependency issue. Quite. And that... When people say that, it is definitely true. It is always true that it is a pipeline problem. But when someone says that, it also, to me, rings to be a bit of an abdication of responsibility, mm-hmm. where if you are an incumbent in some way, you have, say, a hedge fund, and you are not actively encouraging women and minority traders or analysts, you know, if you're not creating the pipeline for them and helping them along the pipeline, that is to kind of shirk responsibility that, you know, of of counterbalancing some of the institutional pressures that come to bear on their existence and their career. So that might be a little social justice warrior of me, but that's how I see it. Leda Braga broke into the rich list, alpha institutional alpha's rich list this year. For the first, that's the first woman ever to break into that list of the highest paid hedge fund managers. And who is she? Uh, she runs Systematica, which is a spin out from Bluecrest, which is a wildly successful firm, which sold a stake in the fall to AMG. Um, to sort of institutionalize. And that's also kind of a prestiged thing, I think. And she's been doing great. Um, so that's a great example of, you know, we got one. So okay. I don't, uh, <laughs> off the top of my head, know any major ethnic minority hedge fund managers, but I will do my diligence on that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's an interesting question. I guess I, I wonder if part of the issue is that it's long been considered like other jobs in finance to be like a very 
chest thumping machismo right. kind of job. Yeah. And I guess uh, a problem is when a lot of the managers who are successful embrace that, mm-hmm. right? And don't realize that it has this effect of shutting out people yes. who might be interested in the profession or even in more straightforward, uh, self-interested um, things like making a little bit of money, right? But it shuts them out for self-perpetuating cult- self um, and it's kind of a, a foolish and also self-defeating thing to do because you end up closing yourself off to a big pool of talent. Exactly. And I think that's a critical point because it doesn't it, – it may not be intentional, right? It's it's certainly not that they're waking up and saying, I'm only going to hire white men today. I'm only going to promote white men today. But because there isn't a, an awareness or there's there's a kind of ignorance about what to do about it, Mm-hmm. that's what de- like de facto ends up happening. And so, you know, in order to create, to kind of bolster um, support networks around other types of managers who may in fact have, you know, diverse views and may have, you know, a, a, a better risk tolerance or a better way to look at the world in some instances, you know, you need that. It helps investing to have more perspectives. You know, you need to create support networks. You need to create ways in which these these, you know, non-traditional, I guess, unfortunately, uh, managers can come to the fore. And I think there are, there are definitely initiatives around that. It's just a matter of it working. Mm-hmm. So, It looks right now like assets under management for hedge funds peaked not long ago and has been in a kind of very gentle but definitive decline, yeah. right? Uh, you've got this long piece with John Authors about how that's mainly pension funds, notably CalPERS, big pension fund out in California, abandoning hedge funds. Is that, do you think, going to continue? Does that have momentum? So the sort of joke in reporting that piece was that, you know, after CalPERS made this move in September 2014 to cut their uh, hedge fund allocation, they said, you know, we're done with this. It doesn't move the needle for us. It's such a small allocation to our giant portfolio that even if hedge funds were killing it, it would not be worth the diligence that we have to do to make it work. And the high fees. And the high fees, certainly. So, you know, they they move back. They still have a big private equity allocation, so they're not out of alternatives. Anyway, the joke was in the pension fund industry, everyone sort of expected this big wave to crash of redemptions. And, oh, no, everyone was kind of wringing their hands and saying, oh, everybody's going to follow suit. CalPERS is a big bellwether. But then nothing happened. And nothing happened and everyone kind of waited. And they were like, actually, maybe, maybe we're good. Maybe it actually isn't coming. And here, 18 months later, Nicers um, of New York actually pulled with very kind of contentious and and, um, very strong words from the public advocate about, you know, you can sell your Hamptons house and your jets and we'll keep our fees. And so that that long time period to some, you know, if you're looking at pension boards, this is the wave. It's happening now. Mm -hmm. It just takes that long because public pensions need 18 months to make the choices and actually do the studies and say, okay, where can we allocate it better? What do we do? So, So that was kind of the, you know, the tide is turning, maybe. The problem is, in a zero interest rate world, they're kind of painted into a corner. Where else do they go for returns? Do you want to buy the S&P now? Do you want to buy bonds right now? Right. Not really. Passive investments are also kind of crowded at the moment. Endowments and sovereign wealth funds don't seem to be quite as down on hedge funds, though. Still still some examples of those saying, hey, yeah, no, we'll, we'll do this. We have a ton of money uh, and nowhere to put it, so why right. not? And that's, I mean, that's true also in pensions. There's still some pensions that are allocating to hedge funds, to be sure. It does seem as though it's more difficult now to justify that to your board. And Ken Griffin at Salt was saying that it's increasingly going to be a winner-take-all business. 
So the good hedge funds, the big hedge funds, which can charge the high fees, will continue to charge the high fees and will continue to gather assets and get bigger. So that's sort of just an argument that emerging managers are screwed. That emerging managers are screwed. Yeah, um, even if they're good. With Yeah, right. With very, very, very few exceptions. So I guess some of this is obviously driven by disappointing returns. Some of it is driven by persistently high fees, the two and mm-hmm. 20 model. I, I guess I, I want to talk a little bit about how hedge funds should be judged, right? Because I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of misunderstanding around this issue. A lot of people tend to point to the underperformance relative to the S and P in a very specified time period. That's not really the only metric by which a hedge fund should be judged. Some of this also has to do with straightforward diversification totally. uh, benefits. Even when the hedge fund itself is going to underperform uh, an upswing in equity markets, can you just talk about, number one, how we should think about it? Number two, given that more nuanced approach, how are hedge funds doing? Hmm. That's a tough question. That's why I asked. (laughs) So- the way the reason why you should not look at the S&P as a comparison is because, you know, if a hedge fund is just buying the S&P and matching that performance, what are you paying for? And also you're paying fees on that. So, you know, they are paid to hedge. That's that's sort of the the point. And, you know, it arose from a investors were looking for uncorrelated returns, and that's what hedge funds purport to offer. And so by that standard, you know, if you have a year like 2013 where the S&P went up 30% and your hedge fund was up 10%, are you sad about that, losing that that difference? Sure. But are you only invested in that hedge fund? You should not be. So the argument, certainly to your point, is diversification, is making sure that you're not, you know, shoving a bunch of money into one hedge fund or or the other who's going to, you know, trip up on something. It should be ostensibly should be a part of a, a bigger portfolio. And I think it's tough to to measure hedge fund performance over a sliced up period of time. You sort of need the entire track record of the manager. And even that um, can sometimes fail you because if you're comparing against, um, you know, things that, that don't have anything to do, like you want it to be uncorrelated. So when you're looking at managers, you need to really investigate, you know, who the person is, what their decisions are and what they are aiming to do. And you know, in this day and age, there are a lot of a lot of ways to do that, and a lot of you know you can call in ex CIA agents to help you better interview people and to help you better understand, you know, if this person is exhibiting psychopathic tendencies or whatever that might lead them to be too much of a risk taker. So it's that so kind in, of diligence. Hedge fund land is that a bad thing or a good thing? I think it could be either. Um, <laughs> the argument is they are going to have a higher risk tolerance and a, a little bit more likely to uh, deceive you. In which case that would be bad on the long term. But you might, I mean, if you watch Billions, it seems like Bobby Axelrod might be a little bit of a psychopath and he does pretty well by his investors. Right. So, you know, take he that as you will. He also cheats. He also cheats. That's a great uh, place to segue into talking about like the stereotypical hedge fund personality. Sure. Right. And I say stereotypical for a reason because it's not going to be the case that every hedge fund manager has the same personality or even the same combination of traits, right? But at least amongst the ones who are very visible and in public, mm-hmm. right, there does seem to be something a little bit insecure about them. There seems to be something a little bit a little bit compensatory. Uh, and I have, a, I have a totally baseless speculative explanation for that. I'm not sure it's right. I'm, I'm just going to see what you think, okay? When you think about billionaires in general, right, and you think about the billionaires that come out of industry, right, the places that the companies that 
make things or that provide services, the public at large sort of gets it, right? So you think about like Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos, they're billionaires, right? Well, I know what an iPhone does because I've got one in my pocket, right? And I know what Amazon does because I can go to the website and get something online. So you build goodwill. Right. Nobody really knows outside of the finance industry what hedge funds do. And in fact, it's a part of their business model to be opaque. So the typical response to that is, well, they help allocate capital to where it can best be used. And that's fine, I guess, as far as it goes. But for most people, I don't think that goes very far, right? They just know that these people have an outrageous amount of money and they don't have the first clue what they actually do. And so when hedge fund managers compare themselves to other people with the same amount of wealth, right, or the same amount of, uh, I guess, um, clout, right, that's provided by their wealth, we're talking about a different beast. We're talking about somebody with something to prove, Mm -hmm. okay? Not within their industries where they're worshipped, but to everyone else. And I think there's a real disconnect there. Absolutely. Uh, I have zero evidence to support that. It's just an impression. So it's actually funny you say that because that almost exactly is a conversation I've been having with people. It seems as though even relative to the private equity industry, which is not so different, private equity has escaped a lot of the scrutiny. And the question is why hedge funds? You know, they feel a little bit unfairly maligned, take that as you will. Because if you look at, at private equity, they do largely similar things. They have better liquidity terms, which are worse for investors. And a lot of hedge fund guys will tell you, like, you just sit back and let the assets do the work. Must be nice. Hedge funds, it's, you know, daily marks, quarterly liquidity. It's really tough, et cetera. So why why does no one appreciate what they do? And I think your point about the iPhone thing is is exactly right. No one it, – it feels exclusive. No one has – you know, your everyday American does not get access to hedge funds. And if they are invested through their pension or whatever, they don't really know it. So they just see these guys who move numbers around on whatever a Bloomberg terminal is getting paid exorbitant fees and for underperforming the S&P. Like what? That does not add up. And so, yes, that analysis is a little bit unfair, but it's what they see. And – I think that the hedge fund industry does not do itself any favors on this front because the sort of more sane and sober people don't tend to come forward and make their own argument. And this was a big thing at Salt. David Rubenstein, who rents Carlisle, you know, started the the whole thing off by saying, you know, our industry is under attack. We need to defend ourselves. We have an obligation to explain what we do. We make money for pension funds. It's not bad. We're not committing crimes. Like we need to be out front and saying this. And I think that's very true. And the problem to me is that a lot of these hedge fund managers got where they are very much on, of their own devices, right? And they see it that way. And they say, you know, I'm I'm not like John Paulson. I'm not like Bill Ackman. I'm, I'm different. And so there's no cohesive understanding of the industry as a community. There are um, lobbying organizations like the Managed Futures Association and AIMA first of all, are not very sexually titled. And secondly, (laughs) don't do a whole heck of a lot. You know, they're very much behind the scenes. So somehow the lobbying from the private equity industry has succeeded in making them, oh, we manage companies. We help companies get better. And, you know, with some exceptions, they used to be barbarians at the gates. Maybe they already paid their dues in that way. But hedge funds just have not managed to defend themselves. And then with things, you know, with it being an almost entirely white male game for, you know, enriching yourself, it does sort of you know, that doesn't help. Yes. And that's how I want to close the segment. Uh, You have a forthcoming comment piece for the Financial Times about latent misogyny, maybe a bit of racism in the hedge fund industry. Uh, I don't know if those terms are too powerful. So I said them for you. Okay. Why don't you give us a preview of uh, what you're going to say? Sure. So 
it's really along those lines. It's saying, you know, this lone wolf mentality is not helping the industry, which doesn't help the lone wolves. And you have um, T. Boone Pickens at SALT saying that, you know, we should ban Muslims. That's a great idea. We need to vet them. Okay. And then you have Lee Cooperman from Omega saying that, you know, just a nasty thing that, you know, Trump should use against Hillary that I don't feel like repeating. And it's just... I mean, it's exhausting. And this is not a good representation of the hedge fund industry, not only from an optics perspective, but also because it's not a true representation. Like, they are not all, you know, misogynist and racist. And, you know, that should be that should be taken seriously. People should be trying to fix that image and letting people who, you know, say things on stage and not correcting for it, not pushing back. Or, you know, maybe we should consider maybe not giving the microphone to 88-year-old Texans who... You would think that there would be a a powerful response from the rest of the the other hedge fund managers because they're going to get tarred with that brush. Exactly. And they're not exactly, as you just pointed out, doing well in the public relations game as it is. And there are people who can make that argument. I mean, on the flip side, Ray Dalio, you know, is trying to help people change the way they see corporate culture. And, you know, there's the Robin Hood Foundation, which does a lot of great work. And there's, you know, the Success Academy, which is largely funded by a lot of hedge fund people. And, you know, Dan Loeb is, you know, the MC. At the, so there's a, a ton of good that can be, you know, brought to the fore. And it, for some reason, just isn't really working. All right. Well, fascinating. Uh, Mary Childs, U.S. financial correspondent for the FT. I don't know why I just gave you a formal sign-off. You're sticking around for a bit. But <laughs> I want to remind everybody who I was talking to uh, and to definitely go check out all of your writing. Uh, you've been covering this um, quite intensively for uh, definitely the, be- the better part of this year and mm-hmm. I guess probably before it too. Just a little, yeah. <laughs> just probably before it too. As promised... We have a discount code for those of you who want to attend Camp Alphaville in London. The event is on July 1st. It's going to be a load of fun. This year, we're calling it the FT's Festival of Finance. It's an entire day of drinking outdoors. And I don't know why I just led with that, because actually, it's an entire day of people talking about some super wonky topics while also drinking outdoors. It's going to be a lot of fun. We really want you to come. And the discount code... If you go to register at ft.com forward slash finance festival is this secret alpha chat. That is all capital letters. One word secret alpha chat. Again, the website is ft.com forward slash finance festival. You're going to get a big discount. Price of tickets this year are already a steal at 100 pounds each. But if you use this code, you can attend for 69 pounds. Definitely check it out. And now it's time for Mary and I to do our long-form recommendations for our listeners. Mary, you're our guest. You first. I'm cheating and I have two. Is that okay? Yes. Okay, great. So the first one, which I actually have read, is um, by Sapna Maheshwari at BuzzFeed. And it looks at the Hot Air Millionaires. Um, It's Dry Bar, which is a new company, new-ish, that gives blowouts. And you just go, get your hair blown out get some champagne, and then you, you know, that's it. Okay, hang on a second. So, yeah. what, what is a hair blowout? Right, so it makes your hair, like, wavy in the right way. Okay, I don't have enough hair to do that. I it's, The concept is a little foreign to me as well, <laughs> but what under, underpins a lot of it is, like, oh, great, a new $45 way to 
somehow make yourself feel vaguely more adequate when in fact you previously were also adequate. Yes. So this is, you know, people are going in before work at seven in the morning to get their hair did to be, you know, ready for their big presentation or to people really have been flocking to it in unexpected ways. And there have been um, copycats popping up and it's just been kind of a massive success. So there you have it. Cool. Yeah. Okay. My second recommendation is one I have not yet read, but I can almost guarantee in advance that it will be good. Jessica Pressler's story out today about Jeremy Meeks, who is a... The hot con. The hot con. Exactly right. So his mugshot went viral because he's just like that good looking and it changed his life. But he ended up getting some kind of... uh, He got an agent. He got some kind of a Hollywood deal. You know, life Because he's that good looking. Because of his beautiful mugshot, his whole life changed. So there you have it. Things can change in an instant, Cardiff. Wow. Should also note that... uh, Jessica Pressler just writes beautifully. Right. right. So that's, that's a, part of the joy. Yeah. Self-recommending piece. Okay. I've got only one, but it's a really good one. The Reply All podcast has been running a series called On the Inside, and it's about a producer there who first was taken by a blog being written from inside jail. I don't know why we've got this consistent jail theme going on right now. Hair and jail. Okay. A convicted murderer in jail had been writing a blog for a few years, and the way he gets the blog published is by writing it out uh, by hand and sending it to his mom, and then she puts it on the internet, right? What starts as a kind of basic and curious uh, investigation into um, you know, into this guy and his life and his blog turns into, very quickly, a kind of true crime narrative about the murder that this guy is in jail for, which was this horrible, gruesome, savage killing and the question of whether or not he did it or if it was performed by one of his other buddies uh, who is still at large. So anyways, we are now on part three of On the Inside and the conclusion part four comes next week and I can't wait. Is that like a firsthand serial? Kind of, but it it didn't start out that way, right? Um, In other words, it started with, just like I said, an inquiry into like what this guy's story was. He writes this blog. It seems well-written. He's kind of an interesting guy, right? And the reporter just wanted to find out more about it. And then she ended up going kind of down the rabbit hole into the actual murder mystery itself. Wow. Right? Yeah, that's fascinating. Sounds awesome. Terrific. Um, Mary, uh, your debut on Alpha Chat, you crushed it as the hedge fund managers might say before we go i want to remind you that uh you can give us a call at 917-551-5012 that is a u.s number for our international callers country code is plus one you can email us at alpha chat at ft.com i'm on twitter at cardiff garcia mary has the shortest twitter handle of all time at m like mary d like dog c like childs definitely go to at MDC to get Mary's Twitter feed. Rank the show, leave a review on iTunes. It helps other people find us. Mary, you know who's not struggling with returns this year? Who's that? The amazing Amy Keene, who produces and edits this podcast. If hedge fund managers want more women to join their ranks in the upper echelons, I would recommend her Mm. unless... They're super sensitive or, you know, really insecure because she absolutely would blow them all out of the water. But you can make a lot of money and then buy us drinks, which would be great. Thanks for everything, Amy. And thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another episode of Alpha Chat. Hold up. 
The latest episode of the Next 5 podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryant, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of the Next 5 wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.